It really is one of my favorite parts of the service. I just love the, just love the chatter. Really, really miss, really missed and love, just love hearing the chatter. I know we've had a lot of, a lot of extra things in this service. I know we're running long. Um, we want to finish First John. By God's grace, I'll, we'll get through it together. Um, but this is God's gift to us what, as we come to his word. And so let's pray, prepare our hearts to hear it. Father, it is um, a very common thing, but a very awesome thing that you would speak to us. Give us a moment of pause and reverence as the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a God who the highest heavens cannot contain. Will speak to us through your word. Give us a hunger. Help us know how hungry we are apart from hearing from you. And give us a humility. Help us to sit beneath this text. It is a, as we finish First John, it is such an encouraging text. But the reality is, is we, we can't receive it, we can't believe it, we can't respond to it apart from your, your grace, through the work of the Spirit to help us hear it and apply it. Above all things, God, what we need most when we gather together as a people is, is not to have a longer to-do list. God, oh, we want to be challenged, we want to, be, we want to grow, we want to see things in our life change, we want to see relationships improve, we want to see sin battled, we want to see all those things, God, but what we need more than anything else is to leave this time and to leave this place more impressed with Jesus Christ. So would you show them all? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have this kind of nagging um, tendency to double check and triple check and quadruple check, kind of everything. So I, I'm leaving my house. I, I have to check, did I close the garage? Okay, I look back in the rearview mirror. I closed it. I drive around the corner. I don't know if I closed it, so I back the car back around the corner, check, did I close the garage, and then drive off again, forget, back up again. This has happened multiple times. My wife appreciates it, particularly when we're late to something. Get out of the car. Did I lock the front door? Feel the front door. I locked it. Katie, Katie, check. I'm, the door's locked. Is it locked? She's like, yeah, it's locked. Okay, we get in the car, drive. It's not locked. Let's go back. Let's check it. Is anyone, can anyone relate to this? When I'm traveling, I used to travel a lot. This would, this would kill me. Be like a 5 a.m. flight out of Bellingham. I'm in the car. I'm driving down U Street. I'm like, oh no, I forgot my iPad. I pull the car over, get out of the car, open the trunk of the car, put my hand in, literally feel the iPad in my bag, pull the, put it back. Okay, I know it's in there. I shut the car, get back in the car, cross Lakeway. By the time I'm on Wilburn, I'm like, I might have forgotten it again. I should pull over and check to see if the iPad is actually in the bag. And don't get me started on like my driver's license. Oh, how am I going to get through the airport? I'm in the line. I'm literally holding my driver's license in my hand. And I'm like, I'm not sure I brought it. I don't know if they're going to, I mean, this. I anyone, you relate, you relate to this? It creates, the reality is it's, it's annoying. It is inconvenient and it is frustrating to those around me, but it's actually kind of low level unsettling. There's always this kind of like, is stuff okay? Am I forgetting something? What, is it going to work out all right? As we finish 1 John, let me remind you of the main hope of the book. That if you are a Christian, you would know that you're a Christian. That you'd know it. You'd know it deep down 
in your soul. In a soul-settling way, in an anxiety-calming way, that it wouldn't be this, well, I think, okay, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And then you go check the lock. Ah, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm like 80% there. You drive back around the corner to see if the garage is closed. When John wrote this to a church, to people he loved, what he longed for them is that they would know. If, if they're Christians, they would know it. And if they're not, they would know it so that they could repent of their sins, believe in Jesus, and become Christians. God wants us to be able to, to traffic through the uncertainties and chaos and confusion of this world, sure, at least of this. That if you're his, that you know that you're his. We're going to look at three things today, and it's a real big text. We're going to try to, we, I'm going to try to go reasonably well through it, but we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to try to look at three kind of interrelated things that we need that we can know, that we can have assurance. You actually can have assurance. We're going to look at where we get it and what it looks like. We're going to have awareness. And specifically in this, it's, there's going to be these, these three, and I know, and I know, and it's something we can be aware of as we go through life, and one thing that we need to be alert about, one thing to watch out for. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is God's holy and flawless and wonderful word. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through the end of the book, verse 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Feel free to grab a seat. In a Greg Gilbert's book, Assurance, um, subtitled Discover Grace, Let Go of Guilt and Rest in Your Salvation, he identifies four sources of assurance, four things that can help us feel what this text is trying to help us feel. The gospel of Jesus, and we'll unpack these here in a minute, the gospel of Jesus, the promises of God, the testimony of the Spirit, this kind of internal sense of like, I believe in Him, and then the evidences of our lives, which has been a big thing throughout 1 John, the way that we live, the, what do we believe, how do we obey, how do we love the doctrinal and the moral and the relational or social evidences that come out. And 
In his book, he, he makes a really interesting insight. He makes this massive point that each of the sources don't work the same, and so not each of the sources should be relied on the exact same. He makes the distinction that some are driving forces of assurance, and some are the responding or resulting sources of assurance. Some are foundational, and some are actually built or flow forth from that foundation. And he points to two things that are foundational for our assurance. And he points to the gospel of Jesus and the promises of God. He says the promises of God and the gospel of Jesus are primary. The evidence of salvation are the the, the confirming sources, the, the way we live. It confirms that we indeed believe those things. And he gives this great illustration that I want to read to you about how this works out. And then we're going to lean into it a little bit. He says this, he says, consider this. In the design of a car, there is a profound difference between the driver of speed and the confirmer of speed, between the accelerator and the speedometer. If we want the car to go faster, we push on the accelerator. We put weight on it, and the car goes. Now, of course, when we do that, one of the results is the speedometer on the dashboard. It indicates, or it shows, or confirms that the car is going. But the speedometer is a sign of speed, not the source of speed. If we want more speed, we can't just raise our hand to the dashboard and use our finger to push the needle up and expect the car to go faster. Here's part of his his point in doing this is that if you want assurance, you can no doubt look to evidences. That's a lot of what 1 John has done. But where you mainly want to look is the gospel of Jesus and the promises of God. I love the way Amin Hudson says this. He was writing a book review on, on Gilbert's book, and he, and he took this illustration. He said like this. He says, stronger assurance, in other words, doesn't mainly come by staring at the speedometer, looking at how we live and all of the evidences. There, there are signs of something, for sure. But stronger assurance, in other words, doesn't mainly come by staring at the speedometer, but by stepping on the accelerator not by piling up good works, but by rehearsing the gospel of Christ and the promises of God. One of the things I love about that is it's incredibly insightful and helpful and comforting as we talk about assurance. Because I imagine like you, this is how my life works. Sometimes I seem to really be living for God and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I can look and I say, well, look at the evidences around. Look at, look at how I'm loving others. I'm being fairly loved. I'm loving. Not perfectly, never, but I'm loving. And sometimes I, I look just so filled with anger and hatred and frustration. Sometimes I really care about God's commands and I really want to follow them. And, and, and by His grace, I'm pursuing them. There's this consistency. And then I just get derailed. And if I only ever or primarily looked at how I'm living to give me a sense of assurance, I would never have it. One day, maybe for a while. By the end of the day, no. So what Gilbert says, if we're going to be able to know that we know that we know that we know we have eternal life in Christ, he says, you got to step on the gas pedal of these two things, the gospel of Jesus and the promises of God. And so that's what I want to do. I want to press on that gas pedal. I want to look at Two verses that I've quoted more than any other verses in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins for the whole world, the sin for all that would trust Him. Now, note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, stop. Knock it off. Be ashamed. Get your stuff together. Hurry up. Because when you're sinning, the, the evidence of following God's commands isn't there as much. And so what John says is a pastor writing to his people, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to step on the gas pedal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Little children, when you're sinning, guess what? You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's a reminder of the gospel, the ground of our assurance that what allows us to, to, to know that we can stand before a holy God in all of our chaos and confusion and wandering and half-heartedness is the perfection of Jesus Christ. He's the righteous. He obeyed. He performed. He was always faithful. The evidences were always there. And through faith in Christ, they're credited to us. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then it goes on and says he's the propitiation, this big word that means he is the wrath-bearing offering. We don't like the idea of wrath as a culture, but you know what we love? We love the idea of justice. And when Christ was offered in the place of those that rebelled to God, what he was doing is saying, we're, we're honoring justice. Christ took the debt that we rang up. He paid the price that we deserve to pay. That's what it's saying. See, put your, mash your foot on the gas pedal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't lean into the way you're not performing. Now, we, we care about how we grow. We care about how we live. But our ultimate assurance is going to come from knowing the truth of what Christ has done. And out of that, living in light of it. Like just, we just don't want to get it twisted. We're right with God because of Jesus. Period. Now, that's going to have all sorts of impacts in our lives and what we believe and how we live and how we pray and how we do so many things. But when we aren't living well, one of the things we want to do is we want to confess, we want to repent, we want to change, we want to grow, but what we need more than anything else is to lean back into this, my little children, when you mess up, remember the righteous one who didn't. Now go there. So we have the, the gospel of Jesus. We also have the promises of God. Um, I'm going to look at just, just one of these guaranteed glorious future realities from another massive verse in 1 John. As I told you, like the text we're looking at today is like really dense and long, and we haven't even really gotten to it yet. So this is, this is not boding well for First <laughs> John 3, 2. We'll get to First John 5 and finish the chapter here in a minute. First John 3, 2. Here's the promises of God. Here's one of them. Beloved, we are God's children now. Boy, you just kind of want to sit there, don't you? We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. For we'll see him as he is. There's so much in that verse. There's so much in that verse. Right now, if you belong to the Father, one day you will be like the Son. That's what it's saying. One day, 
if you belong to the Father, you'll be just like the Son. What this verse is, is saying right now is you 100% belong, and one day you will, you will 100% become. It's the gas pedal that you get to step on. I belong to God in my one. I belong to God in my being. I belong. I can never more or less belong to God. I will never be more or less loved than I am right now, no matter what I do. I will no more. I will never be more or less saved or safe or secure by by what I do or what I fail to do. It is only what Christ has done. I'm going to put my foot on that gas. I'm going to put all of my weight there. Right now, you belong to God, beloved. We are God's children now. And one day we will be like him when Christ appears on this journey towards becoming, 100% belonging, towards 100% becoming, 100% irrevocable, never stop, never giving up, never letting down, never letting go, belonging to God. As you live out this life, talk about the ability to have some assurance. It's the promise. I'll unpack these quickly. The promise of 100% belonging. Let me give you the world of travel, sports. Um, our family does a lot of soccer. I was in SeaTac, yes, outside SeaTac at a game. Today, after this, I would drive down to Tacoma. Don't ever start. Just, that's just a side tip. Don't ever start. Um, I'll have to change this when my kids show up at the next service, but they're not here now, so we'll keep it our secret. Um, so uh, how, here's how travel soccer works. Um, any competitive sports, competitive dance, competitive drama, competitive music, competitive math, chess, I don't know, anything. When you're playing well, your spot feels secure. When you're playing well, you, the coach isn't yelling at you all the time. Your teammates aren't ripping you. The parents on the sidelines aren't saying things that parents should never say to other people's kids, let alone their own. You get, all the, you get playing time, you, 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 you feel like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm solid, I'm here, I feel confident, but you start playing poorly. You have some off game. You don't train quite as hard. You're not, you're not sure you're going to stay on the team. When tryouts come, you're pretty worried. I believe many of us, we bring that into Christianity. Man, when I'm obeying well, I, I know i got a spot in the family. Then we... Maybe do a little less. We're not sure. Is the Father going to be done? Is he going to keep us? Is he, is he going to stiff arm us? If I, if I come back to him, is he going to welcome me or is he going to scold me? But Christianity isn't like that. You'll never get cut. You're never going to get cut from the team because Christ obeyed and because you Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm so excited about that. My voice cracked. <laughs> what would it feel like to believe that on your best day and to feel that? on your worst day. You'll never, ever be cut. The promise of 100% belonging, and then we get the promise of 100% becoming. One day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It means until that day, we're not going to be fully like him. It means you're going to obey, but not perfectly. You're going to love, but not perfectly. You're going to struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle. Let me apply this in one way. One way. And the reality of your struggle with sin it's not a reason to doubt your salvation. In your struggle with sin, and I think this is one of the most common ways this comes at followers of Christ, they really blow it. They really, truly drop the ball. They really, truly offend God. They really, truly hurt people around them. They go, I must no longer be a Christian. That's not what 1 John says, though. It actually says that Christians will struggle with sin. If anyone says they were without sin, they're a liar. 
But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, dear Christian in the room, if you struggle with sin, that is not an evidence that you are not saved. It's an evidence of your salvation because you're struggling against it. You're battling it. You don't want it. Try to make this clear over and over and over again in 1 John. A Christian is not someone who doesn't sin. It's someone who struggles with sin. It's one of the very defining marks of being a Christian. You might believe that your sin disqualifies you, but your battle against sin should actually assure you. Let me quote Greg Gilbert again. He says this. He says, besides, the very mark of a Christian with regard to sin is that they will keep fighting, keep wrestling and striving, keep running the race set before them. And that's exactly what you're doing. Listen, your battle with sin will not last forever, and the Bible's promise is that you will outlast your sin. Oh, that is just goodness. One day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Listen, your battle with sin will not last forever, and the Bible's promise is that you will outlast your sin. You will live to see it pulled from your heart by the roots and vanquished It will take its last breath as you take your first in the bright air of eternity. Live and fight and trust Christ for that day. That's what it feels like to have assurance, not that, oh, I have sinless perfection and look how I'm obeying. It's look at Jesus Christ, the righteous, and the fact that I'm struggling and battling is a very evidence that the Spirit is alive in me that I long to look like Christ and one day I will outlive the very thing that weighs me down right now. Amen? Oh my goodness, imagine going through life knowing that in Jesus you are saved and secure and one day you will be set free. That's verse 13, 1 John 5. I write these things to you that you may believe in the Son of God and you may know that you have eternal life. And then this works out in a variety of ways. One of them is, is, is this, like there's, there's, the word confidence is used a few different times in this letter, we can have confidence back in chapter 2 when Jesus returns. We can have confidence at Judgment Day in, in 1 John 4. And then in this text, it says that we can have confidence right now. And one of the ways it's saying that we can have confidence, and this works out in a very personal way, is in prayer. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Confidence before God. Let me Latin that up a little bit to try to give it some weight. We'll have confidence quorum Dale before the face of God. The one whom the highest heavens can't contain. Confidence. To just come. Bought a book this uh, two weeks ago on prayer for no other reason than the title and the subtitle. Here's the title, Just Ask. Here's the subtitle, The Joy of confident, bold, patient, relentless, shameless, dependent, grateful, powerful, expectant prayer. I think that title captures what happens when we know Christ is our righteousness. We don't come with our performance in our prayer lives. We come through the work of Christ before God, and and we can have confidence. The word confidence literally can be translated this way, freedom of speech. Just freedom of speech, you just say stuff. Kids are the best illustration of this, young kids particularly, before their parents, before anyone gave me that. I want that, let's do this. You know, they just don't, they're, they're just shameless in what they ask. And in Christ, we just become before the Father and we just talk. One of the things that we do, we're free to ask, 
So this text actually moves on. This is going to be an interesting, it's not a detour, but it may feel like that, is that we actually have confidence to ask on behalf of others. And that's where verses 16 and following go. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Before we talk about asking on behalf of others, we have a little bit of housekeeping that I'm going to do very quickly. Um, I read page after page after page after page after page on this. I'd be happy to give you more at some other point, but I want to just quickly do a little housekeeping on what is the sin that, that leads to death, and then we'll look at actually the point of the text, which is to pray for those that aren't doing that. But so the, the sin that leads to death, um, Andy Nacelli summarized it like this. He says, there are four major views on who commits the sin not leading to death and who commits the sin leading to death. One, a believer commits both sins and the second believer apostatizes. So a true believer walks away from God. They can't be forgiven for that. The problem with that one is if you go back in 1 John 2, it says it's, there's this little, little, these verses that say they went out from us for they were not among us because if they were among us, they would not have gone out from us. John has already laid this foundation of if you are Holy Christ, you're never going to fully walk away. You might wander, but Christ is going to get you back. Two, an unbeliever commits both sins. Three, a believer commits both sins, and God may discipline the second believer with physical death. So the idea here is that there's some sins that we do that result in us dying. So it could be sinful practices and choices. could be, you know, in high school, I remember surfing on the top of a buddy's car, doing things like that, and you end up dying. Okay, four. And, and there's, there's, there's people that believe different lanes of these options, and so I'm not going to tell you this is the only one you can possibly believe as a follower of Christ, so I'll tell you the one that I think it is, and we'll apply it that way, and you can wrestle through it um, throughout the week. Four, a believer commits a sin not leading to death, and an unbeliever commits sin that leads to death. I would suggest it's four. I would suggest it's four. I think what this text is talking about is it's saying there's a sin that doesn't lead to death, which is any sin that a Christian does, because any sin that a Christian does can be forgiven in Christ. This isn't talking about a particular sin. It's indefinite. It's just saying sin. And then any sin that an unbeliever does that leads to death is any sin that an unbeliever does because they don't have forgiveness in Christ. It's really just talking about are you forgiven in Christ or are you not forgiven in Christ. And in the context of a church community, as we see one another sinning, what do we do with that? What do we do if the point of this verse is not to focus on what sin can't be forgiven, namely unbelief, is as much as what do we do in the context of a community when a Christian sins? This is important, really important. Because how we interact with each other in our sin will really set the table for whether it gets confessed or not. What we do with one another in a church community when we see each other's sin will really set the table on whether we experience assurance or not. We help to reinforce that with one another. Whether we feel safe to share what's really happening behind closed doors or not. I love that this comes at the, letter, uh, at the end of a letter on assurance. The, I, the first illustration that I think I used in 1 John was... Um, it was on, on my roof, and I, I was studying this this last week, and I was sitting in the same chair where I was studying at the beginning of this series, and I was looking out at this little slope on my roof, and it's the only spot on my roof where the moss grows. And it's getting worse and worse because I haven't done anything about it since we started this series back in, around Easter. It's where the moss grows, and it's the spot of my roof where the sun barely reaches. 
There's just a lot less light. And that place of darkness and shadow is where it grows. It's the same thing with our sin. In the place of darkness and shadow is where our sin has a tendency to grow. It's one of the reasons in 1 John, he, he, we're encouraged to confess our sins, to, to walk with a God who is light, to have fellowship in the light, that we bring the dark things into the light, and then the power of them begins to go away, and, and, and it begins to, to, to get burnt and faded. It's, it's just like the moss. It begins to disappear and dissipate. Sin grows in the darkness, but if we walk in the light, sin in all its monstrous power shrinks. And part of that is as we see one another, how we handle one another, what we do with one another is going to encourage us or discourage us from being honest about what's really going on. And what this text says, if you see a fellow brother, a brother or sister committing sin, here's what you do. Here's what you do. I love this. You pray. The Bible suggests other things for sure, but this one, it says you pray. Here's what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say, if the self-appointed, self-righteous morality police search and search and search and find someone committing sin, they will scold them and embarrass them and shame them. No, it says they'll pray. This verse is about living in community. When you live in community with people, you are going to see each other's sin. You're going to see our rebellion to God's word. You're going to see our screw-ups, our foibles, our mistakes, our mess-ups, our confusion, all of that. We're going to see it. And what do we do? This text says we pray. We ask God to help. It doesn't mean we never say anything in kindness. It doesn't mean we don't ever call out. We do it in love. But it means we ask God to point out. We ask God to intervene. We ask God to bring conviction if there isn't yet that conviction. We ask God to give grace and strength to battle that sin so that person can, can, can walk in light. I love the way John Calvin says it. He says, surely it is an iron hardness not to feel pity when we see souls redeemed by Christ's blood going to ruin. Sometimes we, like we, when we see sin, what we want to experience is pity for others, not self-righteousness towards them. Last week, let me amend something he said. I said, in our church, we don't care if you sin. Let me amend that. If you were here, what I said is we don't, we don't so much care that you sin. We care if you don't battle your sin. So that's, that was the context of it. Let me amend it, though. We for sure care because sin hurts you. It hurts others. More than anything, it, it dishonors a holy God who sent his son to die for the very sins that we sometimes savor. We care because of those things. But we're not surprised. We're not angry. I pray what you will experience in this church. I pray what I will experience in this church as I sin is a community that sees me do it and prays. A community that sees me do it and, and reminds me to mash my foot back on the gas pedal of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises of God that say, you 100% belong. And one day you will look like Jesus. Let's confess your sins together. Let's fight this together. And that's what this text is pointing to. As we flow from this, this, this incredible assurance that we can have through the work of Christ the righteous. There's some things that John ends with that he wants them to be aware of. And in verses 18 through 20, you have this beautiful repetition. We know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, and we know. 
These three things coming together like a three-legged stool that's never wobbling or climbing a ladder and you always have three points of contact so that you don't fall off or you're on a boat and you have three points of contact with your feet down, your hand on a rail so you don't go overboard and drown. Or like football, you have three points of contact. You know, it's like I read an article, like six points. But you know, you got the front and the side and it's mashing at your body so you don't fumble. John is giving this to us as we finish the series. Here's some three things I want you to know. I'm going to do this quickly. Here's what we can know. We can know we will get there by grace alone. We know whose we are by grace alone. We know what we know by grace alone. Verse 18, we know we'll get there by grace alone. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There's two different births here. One is yours when you came to faith, and one is talking about Christ. It's saying Christ in the midst of our struggle towards glory, protects us. There's another text that talks about this, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. I think we'll put this up on the screen. I think we have this slide. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Jesus is talking to one of his dear friends, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your breath. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Behind all the battling that you do, Christ is interceding. Christ right now is interceding. He is praying that your faith may not fail. We will get there by grace alone. I love the way G.I. Packer says, he says, you are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God, Jesus protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know we will get there by grace alone. We know whose we are by grace alone. Ray Van Ness says it like this. He says, we have been through the evidence. We are weak and fail and do stumble, but we believe, obey, and love, and so we are from God. I love how matter-of-fact that is. I recognize I don't live the way I want to. I I'm not just looking at the external evidence that come out. I see some signs of the Spirit. I see some life. Here's what I believe, and so I know that I'm from God. One of my favorite um, songs that we sing is the song, Who You Say I Am. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. And as we get into the, the chorus, who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. If you know the next part, say it with me. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. Probably the most worshipful, one of the most worshipful moments I've ever had on a Sunday was a couple years ago. I was right there. We're standing there. We're singing that song. My oldest daughter was over here. I think it was like one of the first times that she sang in our church and she was singing that song. As she gets to the line, and, and I'm pretty like emotive when we sing. I was like, I just want to put on my fist and like move, and like I'm, I'm pretty into it. And you maybe sometimes don't see, I'll just be down here like hitting my chest, and like ah. And, um, and, I, and, and she sings, she said, she's like, it was, there's just a countenance in her face as so she began to, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And as a daddy looking at the time, my 15 year old said, That's all I want her to know. That's what I want her to believe. It's what I want her to get deep down into her soul. I want nothing more for her as a dad than for that. The Heavenly Father wants that for you. It's what the Father wants you to, that you are, if you are His, that you are a child of God. Yes, you are. 
Verse 19, we know that we're from God. Know it. Even while the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and we are struggling and battling and confused and storm-tossed, I am a child of God. Gas pedal of the righteousness of Christ through what he has done. 100% belonging. And we know it because of God's gracious, divine, fatherly, kind intervention. That's what verse 20 is saying, and we know the Son of God has come. It's given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. How do we come to believe any of this stuff? At the end of the day, we could say it like this. It's the God who gives understanding. Verse 20, He has given understanding. I'm not going to unpack all of that. I just want you to, to, to know that we will get there by grace alone. We know whose we are by grace alone. We know what we know by grace alone. And here's what I want you to see. Your assurance isn't built on us and what we do, but on God and who he is and what he does. That's why it's assurance. If it was built on anything in us, it is as fickle and as weak as humans. But it's built on God. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says, I have no confidence in my confidence. I place no reliance upon my own assurance. My assurance lies. And the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that whosoever believes in him has everlasting life. I do believe in him. And therefore, I know I have. Kind of want to end it there, but we got another verse. We got another verse. It's a strange verse. It feels like a very strange verse. Little children. And everything that's been said and all that we have declared, little children, keep yourself from idols. Go in grace. I mean, it's, it's, we got to be honest. That seems like a strange ending to what has just been said. Um, it, when we first started First John, right after Easter, that was actually the first question I got from someone in the church is, what is that about? And I just kind of had a wry smile. I said, you'll have to wait and see. And so here is the great reveal. It's actually an incredibly important and I think a very appropriate ending to everything that we've heard, because the only gas pedal, the only thing we can mash on, the only thing that gives us any confidence and hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises of God. And the reality is that idols, anything that we are trusting in more than we're trusting in God, anything that we are looking to, to provide hope and security and joy more than God, we've turned into an idol. And so the thing, the one thing we have to be really alert on if we're going to live with assurance is that nothing dislodges God as the place of our ultimate security, the place of our salvation. Love the way Andrew Prudeau says it, and I really am almost done. Every day, we find ourselves in a battle between competing affections and priorities, a battle we fight against, our deep-seated preoccupation with love for self, which the world and the devil reinforces and fuels. When John tells us to keep yourselves from idols, he draws together all the threads of his letter. He's saying, and here, what, what, what you're about to hear is really a summary. If you're going to go through 1 John, there's all these threads. Don't be seduced by false views of God and of Christ. Don't let your heart be captured by the idol of self and the trinkets and trivialities of the world. Reject the phony intimacies of sexual immorality. Reject the false promises of empty riches. 
Reject the vain boasts of self-promotion and the lustful craving for fame. Reject the superficial relating and fair-weather friending and easy enemy-making that too often passes for friendship in the world. Reject the half-baked, flat-tire, anemic versions of Christianity offered up by a theological liberalism that has man rather than the Lord Jesus Christ at its center. Choose Christ. The only place assurance is going to come. It's the only place that forgiveness is offered. It's the only place that salvation can be found. You've chosen Christ because Christ has chosen you. Here's what you can know. You have eternal life. Saved, secure, and one day fully free because of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in light of the finished work of Jesus, there is now and never will be any condemnation left for our sin. Absolutely zero condemnation hanging over us. Astonishing but true, hard to believe, but ours to enjoy, so contrary to our world. But our true and deep and blessed assurance in this world, all because of Jesus. Because of our sin, Jesus had to die for us, but because of his love, Jesus was glad to do so. The just for the unjust, the lovely one for the loveless one, the merciful for the marauding the righteous for the rebellious, the graceful one for the self-absorbed one. And now, even right now, you cherish us, Father. It's your beloved children, you cherish us. Grant us the ability to know, to really know, and to never forget how safe and saved and secure we are in Jesus. Oh, for the day we'll never doubt it again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the band comes up, we're going to respond um, as we do every single week by retelling really these two main foundations of our assurance, the gospel of Jesus and retelling the promises of God. When we receive communion, we take the bread and the juice. One of the things the Bible says is that we are declaring the Lord's death until he comes again. What we're doing is retelling, this is how we are saved. This is how we are made right. Here is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and one day he's coming back. And so I want to invite anyone here, and it's, it's, it's the, the only barrier for receiving communion in, in the church is faith in Christ. So you were invited to believe. You were invited to turn from your sin and turn from your performance and turn from trying to climb your way to God and confess your need for a Savior. And then go to this table and take the juice representing the blood of Christ and the, the little wafer representing the body of Christ and say, this is my righteousness and I will do this and declare this until the day when Christ comes to take me home when I will finally be 100% like him. Right now, I am saved and I am secure and one day I will be fully free. We're gonna have just a minute or two of instrumental so you can prepare your heart however you feel led and then feel free to go to this table. We're gonna sing two songs together so you have time if you wanna sit long, you wanna stand and sing, you wanna go to the table right now, you, you, you go as you feel led. Let's respond and sing to our great king.
lost at the fall Running away when I hear you call But Father, you worked your will I had no righteousness of my own I had no right to draw near your throne But Father, you loved me still And in love before you laid the world's foundation you predestined to adopt me as your own. You have raised me up so high above my station. I'm a child of God by grace and grace. You left your home to seek out the lost. You knew the great and terrible face was set. I worked my fingers down to the bone. Nothing I did could ever atone. Jesus, you pay my debt. By your blood I have redemption and salvation. Lord, you died that I soul of my life I never knew the day from the night the spirit you made me see I swore I knew the way on my own head full of rocks a heart made of stone the spirit you moved in me and at your touch my sleeping spirit dark and heart the light of Christ has shone called into the kingdom that cannot be shaken heaven citizens by grace and grace alone so I stand in faith by grace and grace 